Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, July 11th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Happy to be here. Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Good morning. And Alice Holstein of Politico. Hello. Later, we'll have an interview with the University of Michigan law professor Nicholas Bagley about the appeals court arguments in the latest lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So obviously the big health news this week is the Affordable Care Act back in court again. This time it was at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans. At issue is that lawsuit out of Texas where a district court judge back in December ruled that Congress is zeroing out of the tax penalty in their 2017 tax bill rendered the entire health law unconstitutional. Now legal experts from both sides of the fight over the health law find the reasoning in this case dubious, and that's putting it mildly. But apparently two of the three-judge panel uh, Republican appointees seem to be buying what the individuals and red state attorneys general are selling. Let's start by talking about what would happen if the entire ACA was actually struck down. Kimberly. A lot, a lot more than people realize. Um, So about 20 million people gained health insurance through the Affordable Care Act. So those people would uh, be likely to lose that coverage. Um, Some folks are on Medicaid, which is fully paid for by the government. Government. Other folks are on um, subsidized plans that are run by private insurers. Um, but there's so much more in the Affordable Care Act that would be struck down. For example, and this was something that was brought up um, during the oral arguments on Tuesdays, <laughs> is that the there are parts of the Affordable Care Act that have to do with healthcare fraud, with biosimilars, with putting calories in your menus um, if you're running a restaurant chain. And so uh, it really could reverberate throughout uh, the healthcare system. I read some of the um, friend of the court briefs. And they used words like chaos and havoc and, you know, that, that it would just it would disrupt the entire healthcare system and not just that the, the things we most think of when we think about the Affordable Care Act. Alice and I wrote a story together uh, in December when the lower court decided that Obamacare was unconstitutional. And, and the two big points, I think, are that people who get their insurance through a job or however else, not they don't think of themselves as being covered by Obamacare. They're not on Medicaid expansion. They're not going through the exchanges. But insurance in the United States of America has changed under the Affordable Care Act. And whether you realize it or not, you have all sorts of protections that you did not have before, both in terms of if you do change jobs and, and lose your job and you need to buy insurance, if you're sick, if you have a pre-existing condition, that applies to you. If you um, had your kid on until you, they were 26, that applies for you. Many consumer protections, such as the end of annual caps, you know, if you got really sick on the price of some of these drugs and some of the surgery your insurance used to go up to X, and now there's no lifetime limit. There's no annual limit. There are a lot of protections that people now take for granted and have no clue that the court would throw them out. And the other thing, and then I'll let Alice add whatever I'm forgetting, is the entire healthcare system in ways that may not be visible to patients. 
Um, but there's an enormous alphabet soup of delivery system reforms of accountable care and patient-centered medical homes and risk-bearing entities. And I'll stop there, but there's 400 more. Um, these are all ways of making our healthcare system uh, supposedly more efficient, better care coordination, and slowing the growth of healthcare costs. And all that would be much of that. Anything that the government was involved in would be thrown out the window too. It would be it would be beyond chaos. And I think something that has a lot of people nervous as well is that a lot of the administration's supposedly conservative-led um, priorities and actions on the health care front depend on the Affordable Care Act and would be at risk if the Affordable Care Act were to be struck down in its entirety. The new kidney policy unveiled this week. Which we'll talk about the, in a few minutes. The HIV efforts we've talked about before, the efforts to combat the opioids epidemic, all of these depend on pieces of the Affordable Care Act. And I thought it was interesting. Our uh, podcast colleague, uh, Anna, asked CMS Administrator Suma Verma yesterday about this issue of of the administration's priorities depending on the Affordable Care Act. And she sort of indicated, oh, we'll keep the pieces we like. But that is what got us here in the first place. The whole issue the court is taking up and arguing is you can't just keep the pieces you like. It has to be all or nothing. But the judge just didn't seem to understand that. Well, you're anticipating my next question, which is that the plaintiffs in this case, um, there's a couple of individuals and then a a bunch of Republican attorneys general, um, are arguing some pretty complicated stuff. The first is that by reducing the tax penalty to zero, but not eliminating the mandate language itself, so it still says that people shall maintain health insurance or else pay a fine, just the fine is now zero, and seem to agree with the plaintiffs that that means that the mandate is still there, but it's now unconstitutional since there's no longer a tax that raises any money. And what they're resting on is the 2012 decision from the Supreme Court that said the individual mandate could be upheld because it could be interpreted as a a tax and therefore people could either choose not to have health insurance or uh, and pay a tax or to purchase health insurance. What I thought was interesting from the coverage of the arguments is that the Republican-appointed judges in the case, it was three judges, two Republican-appointed and one appointed by a Democrat, um, and the conservative judge was saying, speculating that when Congress voted to get rid of the mandate penalty and not the rest of it, that they had a secret plan that this would be the secret bullet to take down the Affordable Care Act, which is not really in the record. (laughs) In fact, the opposite is in the record. We we all covered the tax bill because there were yes. other health pieces in it. And right. I don't remember anybody ever saying anything about that. Exactly. Well, I, I think that some of them were hoping that. But I mean, clearly, if if the people who had voted, the three lawmakers who voted, uh, you know, Murkowski, McCain and, and Collins, if they had uh, the three senators who, who voted, you know, they had many, many opportunities to repeal Obamacare. They prevented the appeal of Obamacare. They did vote for the tax bills. I'm not sure if Murkowski did. I think they all did. I think they all um, did. Mm-hmm. But they said publicly and clearly mm-hmm. this is not an attempt to end the Affordable Care Act. This is part of our package in the tax deal. The other thing I think that, that struck me is back during um, King versus Burwell, which was what, 2015? When we were reading the ruling, I was thinking to myself, these guys and gals took like insurance 101. They sort of, you know, it was a fairly technical briefing about, well, if you remove this or that, you, you know, subsidies and how the they fit Supreme together. Court decision Supreme you're Court talking decision. about. And in this one, it was like, instead of taking 
Insurance 101, it was like they took insurance 000. It was like one of them said, why can't we just keep the happy stuff? Well, because, you know, as any mother can tell you, you don't get dessert unless you have your spinach. Well, and that's my next question because that's the uh, the other big piece of this argument is that if the mandate is now unconstitutional, then does necessarily the entire rest of the law have to fall? And as somebody pointed out yesterday, the entire rest of the law isn't just the Affordable Care Act. But remember, there was a law that went alongside it that had a lot of student loan stuff in it. Stuff, right? and, yeah, and, and Reforms lot... to the Indian Health Service. There's all sorts of stuff. Yeah, that, right. that law might end up falling, too. That's, right. What's the argument here that why the whole thing has to go away? Severability. <laughs> <laughs> Such a fun concept. The, the one piece, the mandate penalty, cannot be severed from the rest of the law. And again, that, that goes back to past Supreme Court decisions saying, you know, this mandate penalty, which they read as a tax, was sort of the crux of the entire thing. And it did seem like both the Republican judges as well as the DOJ attorney, they were looking for ways not to completely sow chaos right ahead of the 2012, ele- uh, sorry, 2020, 2020 election, going back in time. So they were saying there are ways they could send it back to the district court for more clarification, which would sort of push the timeline a little further. They were asking if it's possible to implement uh, a rule in getting rid of Obamacare only in some states and not others, which, no, I mean, logistically, that would be even more of a nightmare. Um, So, I mean, there does seem to be some exploration of how to not have a national wipe out next year. Yeah, well, that was right. actually that's my next question, which is when you, you mentioned the, the attorney from the Justice Department who was there for part of the argument. The Trump administration has now had three positions on this court case. I mean, first, they said that they weren't going to defend the whole law, uh, but they were going to say that maybe the uh, pre-existing condition protections might have to go because they were directly linked to the to the mandate. Um, and then after the district court decision, which would be a big deal, I which mean, would we're, be a we're, very we're, big we're, deal. The conversation has now shifted to total throwing at all of the ACA. Mm-hmm. But if they do something more moderate, like the, the pre-existing conditions and other related consumer protections, that is still a big deal. And that is also a possible scenario. That's right. But And then so so then they said, well, we agree with the district court judge. We should throw out the whole law. And then now they're saying, Alice, what you were talking about, which is maybe it could possibly only take effect in, in the, the states, states that, that are, are suing, suing. <laughs> and, and for the things that hurt the state. So it wouldn't even be in its entirety. Which... Attorneys on the other side argue none of this actually hurts the states at all. If there's no mandate, then wh- like what's the injury you're claiming? So there's there's that whole piece of it as Although well. Although I think that the the lawyer for the Republican attorneys general argued that both sides. There was some question about whether the Democratic attorneys general who are defending the law because the administration isn't right. have standing, and I think he agreed that both states, both sets of states, do because both sets of states would either spend more money because probably mostly because of the Medicaid expansion because they have to pay, even though it's a tiny share, they have to pay a share. And then on the other side, if the law went away, states would lose money. So presumably both sets of states have, have something at stake. But I'm still sort of curious about the administration and where they see this politically. Is there any advantage to them keeping changing their position? They haven't stopped it now. I mean, they're they're having a meeting tomorrow. No, yeah, tomorrow, tomorrow. They're having a meeting tomorrow with conservative advisors to talk about how to finally – they'll come up with a plan that they can run on and that they can talk about during 2020. You know, we've joked about it before. You know, Trump always just describes this terrific and we call it terrific care because we don't know what's in it. And they will come up with something and that they can say we're going to fix it. Will anyone really believe them? You know, we've seen 10 years now of attempts to undo Obamacare in the courts, in the states – regulatory process, Congress, and it's 
still there, folks. Um, this is a threat. I mean, this is a threat that no one thought was going to be a threat. But it's also a threat that could go in 40 different directions, or at least five or six really may. They could throw it out. They could, I mean, they could throw the law out. They could throw the case out. They could, uh, you know, they could vacate it. They could um, or strike they could, part of it. Exactly. They could, you know, do it an alternative. It's like alternative side of the street parking. You know, you can do this and then you do that. Um, they could do any number of things, things that less less extreme than throwing at the entire law would still create. There's, there's the, the potential for chaos is limitless. So just one last reality check here. Mitch McConnell said uh, when he came and spoke to the press on Tuesday that if the court were to strike down, he was talking about just the pre-existing conditions, conditions part, which is, as you mentioned, Joanne, is indeed possible, that uh, that Congress would act, what was it, quickly and bipartisanly to put them back. What are the actual chances of that? I mean, if there was bipartisan agreement on a path forward on health care, we would have seen it already. And we'd sleep a lot more. <laughs> and past crises and programs expiring and deadlines have not produced this kumbaya moment that he's describing. So I'm very skeptical. But they, they could do some kind of short-term fix. I mean, I don't think they could do anything. I think that they're so riven in this and there are people like mm-hmm. Milk Mulvaney who really do want to bring down the whole thing because they think that will trigger a, a forced action that mm-hmm. the Democrats would have to come to the table and do something the Republicans want or get the blame for the chaos. So that's the political calculus on the far right. I mean, there's always the, you know, the Congress is good at short-term extensions of things. So could you, you know, if the court says it goes away on election day, could Congress say, well, let's make it, keep it another year or so, while we while we work on it together? No, I think the chaos and, and you know, sort of this big cosmic, you know, arm wrestling is what would happen. So the Affordable Care Act becomes like the debt ceiling. Oh, I hope Yeah, not. although, I mean, I don't it, it also really reminds me of how they, they tried to pass repeal and delay in 2017 yeah. as one of the many, many iterations. Yeah. They, I, I, don't, I think chaos yeah. was not yeah. popular. I don't think a short-term fix is like, I mean, I, I, Congress is actually good at short-term fixes. It's one of their specialties. So I don't think we can rule Kicking it out. Kicking the can down the I road. I don't think we can rule out a short-term fix in that scenario. But I, I actually don't think it's, I mean, I think more it would be everybody would do in and blame the other side Mm -hmm. and take it to the voters. All right. There was other health news this week. President Trump signed an executive order calling for better care for people with kidney disease. I admit I did not know that kidney disease cost more than the National Institutes of Health, the Department of Homeland Security, and NASA combined. A factoid trotted out by the White House this week. What is the president proposing? Kimberly. He basically has uh, rolled out a bunch of initiatives that would allow more people to get kidney transplants. Um, one of the ways it would do that is by, you know, reimbursing people for wages lost to uh, donate kidneys to other people. That's right. Right now, I guess medical bills are paid, but not sort of your ancillary bills, which I guess prevents a lot of people from donating. Right. We should we should emphasize, in case some listeners do not realize that, that you can donate, you can live with one kidney, you can be a live kidney donor. Unlike many organ shortages where you have to have somebody die, you do have the option of, and we'll return to this when we get to our extra credits, I believe, you can donate a kidney to a relative or to a stranger. But it's it takes a lot. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, the one interesting thing about, um, you know, dialysis is that it's this sort of carve out that we have in Medicare that we really don't have in other parts of the healthcare system. So if you have kidney failure, you need dialysis, which is uh, a procedure that you have to undergo three to four times a week. It really limits your um, well-being and um, your quality of life and, and all of that. So that's why, um, you know, getting a kidney transplant is so important to these people. But that is all fully paid for by Medicare. And so it would otherwise cost about $70,000 
$1,000 a year for folks. So um, that really gives the government a lot of room to kind of leverage this and to make sure that people are getting the care at home so that they don't have to go into the facilities um, and uh, improving uh, early diagnosis so that it doesn't accelerate to that level. So this is really something that could change um, how people live who are on dialysis uh, very greatly. Unlike most uh, of the president's health proposals, this one was pretty widely hailed by most people, I guess, except the industry that uh, that has, uh, what do they call it, the duopoly, the two companies that do most of the dialysis in this country. It's, I mean, they're really everywhere. And you drive around the country and you can see, you know, in, in the state, like was, I was in West Virginia recently, where there's a huge diabetes and obesity problem, which leads to kidney disease. And there were more dialysis clinics in rural West Virginia than there were churches. I mean, it was just like wherever you go, um, they're, they're, they're two dominant for-profit companies. Every incentive they have is to keep the system the way it is. Medicare pays the bills, as Kimberly just noted, and they've been paying the bills for 40-something years, 50 years, 1972. Mm-hmm. It is not in their interest to come up with something else. They fund some of the patient advocacy groups, as which is true of the, across the healthcare industry. And I'm not singling them out. Obviously, dialysis does keep patients alive for some period of time. But yeah, this was really you know people like this. I mean, you know, the president mangled his speech about it and said something about the kidney is an important part of our heart or something. We knew what he meant, and that sort of <laughs> overshadowed dialysis is really not a fun thing to go through. It doesn't even work that great. You know, you you get a few years and you don't get a few quality years. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, you know, they're not, the kidney patients aren't activated. I think it's not as much on all of our radar, even though we swim in this. um, They don't have as organized a a sort of political advocacy, grassroots, pink ribbon kind of thing. Um, And it's a huge, huge common problem. Was it 30 million people have advanced something like that? Was that the right number? It's a lot of people. Like like you noted about West Virginia, I mean, the class dynamic here is definitely a part of a part of that lack of patient advocacy, I'm sure. And Alice, as you pointed out, the irony here is that a lot of what the president would like to do is dependent on authority that exists in the Affordable Care Act. (laughs) Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. So they want to use different payment models that essentially would incentivize dialysis centers to provide care at home instead of in these facilities. So the reimbursement would go up there. And yeah, there are parts of the Affordable Care Act that allow um, the government to basically play with these different kind of payment models. And that would you know, be struck down if the entire Affordable Care Act were to be thrown out. And they also have incentives for research for to create an artificial kidney. But I I have not looked at that science. I don't know how close we are. Uh, I don't think Actually, that... I know somebody who's working on it yes, and but... who thinks that they are pretty close. Well, that would be a Which would be a really potentially thing. great thing. Yeah. It would be a potentially great thing. So also in court this week, a federal district court judge temporarily stopped the administration's plan to require drug companies to put prices in their TV ads after the drug company sued. Someone remind us what that was all about. Well, I thought it was interesting because the court didn't really totally agree with what the pharmaceutical companies were arguing, which was a a First Amendment argument saying you're compelling speech um, that that we don't want to put in our ads. Um, And so the court didn't go along with that particular argument, but said this should be up to Congress. Um, And Congress may well. I mean, there are bipartisan bills that would do just this. So Senator Grassley and Senator Durbin Mm -hmm. are trying to. The idea is if you disclose the prices, you would shame them into lowering them. We have no idea if that would really work because there's been lots of shaming and prices go up um, and that it might help consumers. It also might confuse consumers because that ticker, the sticker price is not what most of us pay. Um, The court took a really narrow they did it on a technicality. Mm-hmm. They did it because 
they had, the government had relied on the Social Security Act and that that didn't apply. And so it was a narrow ruling, but it stopped it. But I don't think you've heard the end of this. Yes. Well, and also just breaking this morning on the drug price front. Breaking the, late last night, yeah. which is why I'm so sleepy today. <laughs> the administration uh, is apparently shelving its uh, its rebate rule for Medicare Part D. Um, what what does that mean? What is what What was this rule going to do? Nothing that any of us can explain in a way that any normal person would understand. <laughs> it aimed to, to reduce what patients who are on Medicare and Medicaid, mostly Medicare, though, because Medicaid is, is largely covered, but are paying at the pharmacy counter. So basically, pharmacy benefit managers are involved in this whole um you know, idea that the administration had in which they negotiate the what the prices of drugs and they receive rebates. What it would have done would have been to undo those rebates so that patients are actually, you know, getting the benefit because often the pharmaceutical companies say that these middlemen are taking the profits for themselves and they're not passing on Right, and pocketing them, basically. Right, right. So even though, you know, they might get a discount, the patient ends up paying more at the pharmacy counter. So, um, you know, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar was had been really excited about this. He said it was going to be one of the major changes. Um, the middlemen who negotiate these rates are uh, had been saying that it would cause premiums to go up for seniors and had fought it. It was going to cost the government a lot of money. Uh, so the White House nixed it. Um, and that puts two of the drug pricing ideas for the Trump administration just this week um, kind of on hold then, or Oops. at least one <laughs> yes, is but, gone. But yeah. the president did a very offhand remark that nobody on the planet totally understood last Friday. Um, well, you know, the 4th of July weekend said something about um, and he was going to do an executive order that would have America pay the lower prices than most using a most favorite nation. We would find what country on the planet paid the lowest price price for a drug and we would pay less through executive order. And no, we called around. I think all, many other reporters <laughs> called around. Nobody knew what he quite meant. Um, there is something else that's still um, in, in the in, in sort of the pipeline of, of for drug pricing, which is also somewhat technical. It's known as IPI. It's pegging U.S. prices for certain drugs, not for everything, to a, a sort of a benchmark or average of a designated group of developed countries. And so we would pay because we pay more than anybody else. That's still, as far as we know, a hot idea. All right. Well, obviously, way more to come on the drug price front. Um, finally, this Preferably week... Preferably not at 1 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> Getting too old for this. I'll try that. <laughs> finally, this week, we've had a flurry of court action on the Trump administration's proposed new rules for the Title X family planning program. Those are the rules that forbid health professionals from making abortion referrals and require physical separation between facilities that provide contraception and those that provide abortions, squarely aimed at evicting Planned Parenthood from the federal program. So a couple of weeks ago, an appeals court panel in San Francisco ruled that the administration was likely to prevail in its case, and it canceled injunctions that had been issued by lower court judges in California, Oregon, and Washington. Then on July 3rd, the full Court of Appeals uh, for the Ninth Circuit said it would hear the case and put the rules back on hold for now. Um, but I guess like the ACA, the family planning program is sort of in limbo, right? Alice, you've been following Yes, this. and all of this on and off and on and off is, is damaging for the program and the network of providers because they have to make plans in advance and they have to, you know, contract with sub providers and everything. Um, and 
there's been a lot of good reporting about how confused patients, low-income patients who depend on these um, services have been by all of the news on this. And so um, a date has not been set yet in the Ninth Circuit to hear the case. But for now, it's, you know, business as usual, the Trump rules uh, restricting these clinics um, saying you can't offer abortions or abortion referrals. Those uh, rules are not in effect for now. And we should point out that Title X does not itself pay for abortion. Yes. It never has. It was passed right. in 1970 before abortion was even legal nationwide. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the question, you know, and the argument from conservatives over the past 38, what, 39 years, uh, is that the money's, that money is fungible and that it's all commingled and that that is, that is their concern. Right, right. But it's also a running the clock strategy here because at the end of the day, the Supreme Court is likely to uphold the, the Trump policy. I mean, there are precedents already for the Reagan and Bush years. And um, the advocates on the other side know that at the end of the day that they're probably going to lose. But if I mean, I think part of it is running the clock, hoping you get to 2020, a new president who is not a Republican comes in and the rule changes. Which is what happened last time. That's right. Which is what what has happened in the past. Right. And it happens with many uh, abortion and contraception related policies, Mexico City and so forth. So I think what you're partly seeing here is, uh, you know, how long, how many court hurdles can you get um, to delay what may otherwise be, you know, if, if Trump is reelected, this is probably an inevitability or something that looks like this, maybe not exactly this policy, but something along these lines. Next year's session of the Supreme Court could have a lot of health care in it. Yes. <laughs> All right. That is the news for this week. For more on the lawsuit that could overturn the Affordable Care Act in its entirety, I talked to University of Michigan law professor Nicholas Bagley. We'll play that interview, then we'll come back and do our extra credits. So here's Nick. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Nicholas Bagley, who teaches health law and administrative law at the University of Michigan Law School. He's been watching this lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act since the very beginning. Nick, welcome to the podcast. I'm very happy to be here. So after listening to the oral arguments before a three-judge panel at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, what was your biggest takeaway? I think the word you used in your write-up was brutal. Yeah, um, I would say that that oral arguments did not go especially well for the defenders of the Affordable Care Act. I want to say up front, you know, it's always hard to know what to make of these oral arguments. Sometimes judges change their mind. Sometimes they're playing devil's advocate. So, you know, you don't want to put too much stock into the impressions you draw. At At the same time, the judges are sending signals about how they think about the case. And instead of laughing what I think are some pretty ridiculous arguments out of court, The judges took them seriously. The judges asked um, lots of hard questions of California, which is seeking to defend the ACA, and really didn't ask similarly tough questions to the state of Texas, which is seeking to tear down the the Affordable Care Act. Uh, You know, I think a lot of legal observers thought and, and hoped and expected the Fifth Circuit to be pretty skeptical of the arguments that the Affordable Care Act is on the whole unconstitutional. But that wasn't what we saw. What are some of the laughable arguments that they seem to take seriously? Well, there are really two at the core here. The first is that when Congress eliminated the penalty for going without insurance coverage, well, that when Congress did that, it actually made the individual mandate more coercive because it eliminated a free choice that people might have had before. And it's hard even to state that argument with a straight face, but the the claim is something like, look, originally the individual mandate was an instruction to buy insurance and a penalty. 
and it was sustained as a tax because of the penalty. But when you get rid of the penalty, all that exists is the naked instruction to buy insurance. And when Congress says you must buy insurance, surely it means you must buy insurance. And from that perspective, you know, Congress lacks the authority to make that kind of coercive command. The argument doesn't really hold water, mostly because the best way to understand what the Affordable Care Act did is to give people that choice. And the best way to understand what Congress did in 2017 when it eliminated the mandate penalty is to actually just reduce the consequences of exercising the choice to go without insurance. But the court didn't seem to buy that. The second big argument that I think is pretty laughable is that if you believe this penalty-free mandate is somehow unconstitutional, that the entire rest of the Affordable Care Act has to fall. I mean, the Affordable Care Act is a big and complicated statute. It touches on all sorts of matters, even matters that have nothing to do particularly with health insurance. So the notion that a defect this trivial in a law somehow requires courts to invalidate all or maybe a substantial part of it I just have a hard time wrapping my head around that. But again, the judges seemed receptive to that argument. I think one of the judges even said that maybe Congress did it on purpose, that they knew that by making this unconstitutional, it would bring down the whole law. Yeah, it was Judge Elrod. She said it was maybe maybe they thought it was a silver bullet. And, you know, I have to tell you, that's an absurd way to understand what Congress did when it repealed the mandate penalty. We don't have to speculate about what it was trying to do. Members of Congress, the president himself, They all said, we're repealing the individual mandate. And that makes sense, right? If you repeal the thing that gives the mandate force and effect, of course that's what you're doing. But the judges seemed pretty inclined to give a a stingier construction to what Congress was doing, to, to assume that what Congress did in eliminating the mandate penalty was to somehow eliminate the free choice that people had to decline insurance and instead impose a coercive obligation. And I just don't think that's a fair construction of what Congress is up to. So if the appeals court agrees with the lower court that without the mandate penalty, the entire law is unconstitutional, what happens then? California and the other blue states that have intervened in the case would surely ask the Supreme Court to intervene. You know, in the meantime, not much would happen. The courts would likely enter a stay of any decision that they'd enter, recognizing that they want to give the Supreme Court a chance to take a look at this first. And so no one, I think, is in immediate danger of losing their insurance coverage. No one is in immediate danger of being um, you know, forced off their plans or losing Medicaid. But once a case gets to the Supreme Court, right, of course, that judgment really will have a binding effect on the whole country and you know, could be some time before the Supreme Court uh, is able to address and resolve the case. And, and frankly, it could be hanging over the 2020 election, which you know, raises all sorts of tough political questions. It's unlikely to take effect today, but who knows what happens down the line. There's also the possibility that I think a couple of the judges raised that they might want to send it back to the district court. That might push it out of the 2020 campaign window, mightn't it? It might, right? So the, the, that wouldn't preclude the blue states from seeking cert, from asking the Supreme Court to hear the case, they could still do that. But the Supreme Court might think, you know, gosh, wouldn't it be better if we could put this case off, especially because of the election? And if that was their judgment, yeah, then we could get a trip back to the district court judge, Judge O'Connor, and then back to the Fifth Circuit, and then only then to the Supreme Court. So I think one possibility is that that depending on what the Fifth Circuit says, it could tack on a year or two 
to the final conclusive resolution of this lawsuit. So not that this isn't confusing enough, but the Justice Department seemed to be arguing that perhaps this should only apply to the states that sued and not to the other states. Um, how would that even work? And is there any legal precedent for you know, striking down a law only in some states? It's a good question, and it is very complicated. The, the shorthand version of it is that usually in a court case, only the parties that have sued get the benefit of the court's decision. So the United States government is saying, hey, you know, these are only the red states that have sued. We don't think the blue states are properly concerned in this case. And any relief that the court enters should be confined to the red states. Um, I actually think in important respects, it really doesn't. This argument, you know, there was a lot of discussion of it at the oral argument, but I don't think it much matters. And here's why. When the case gets up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court will issue an authoritative declaration as to the validity or the invalidity of the Affordable Care Act. And whether that decision formally, technically applies only to the red states, the Trump administration or whatever administration happens to be sitting will adhere to it across the United States, not because of the force of the judgment itself, but out of respect for the final determination of a co-equal branch. So all of this discussion about whether the judgment applies to the blue states may affect a technical question of whether they have standing to sue. It may affect the scope of the underlying judgment. It may have some short-term consequences. But at the end of the day, the Supreme Court will decide this case. Whatever they decide, that will apply across the whole country. One last question. Somebody asked on Twitter today whether it might also apply not just to the Affordable Care Act, but to the companion law that went with it that had all the basically House and Senate agreements on how to 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 amend it. So there were really two laws that passed. Could it reach that law, too? I think that that, that it almost certainly would if Judge O'Connor's ruling is sustained. Usually when the courts have thought about the Affordable Care Act, they've thought about it as a package. So it's the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act and the Health Care Reconciliation Act, HCRA, and the two together constitute the Affordable Care Act. Um, but the attention to th- like that kind of detail question about what exactly rises and falls if you strike down the Affordable Care Act, that attention to detail is absent in Judge O'Connor's decision. And it, I think, was pretty tellingly absent from the Fifth Circuit's discussion of the case yesterday. You know, there's been the sort of thought that you can just sort of say invalidate the ACA as if that that were a completely clear command, but it's not. It's a big, complicated statute with lots and lots of moving parts. As you say, it's not even one statute. It's two separate statutes that have been implemented through dozens and dozens of regulations that have been on the books and have gone into effect. So there's a, there's a lot of, of kind of remedial complications in this case that so far have been papered over. We will see how it goes. Uh, well, healthcare is complicated and law is complicated. Nick Bagley, thank you for helping to explain both of them. Always happy to help, Julie. Thanks for having me on. Okay, we are back and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Alice, why don't you start this week? 
I wanted to talk about, um, so CNN did an interview with Joe Biden, um, still current front runner in the polls for the Democratic nomination. And I, I just thought it was interesting um, the way uh, the Medicare for All discussion is evolving. And so this is sort of an emerging line we're hearing from some uh, moderate Democrats who do not support Medicare for All, basically comparing progressives who support Medicare for all to Republicans who want to repeal the Affordable Care Act, saying they're both sort of enemies of the Affordable Care Act and playing on his role in the lead up to creating the Affordable Care Act and, you know, saying he's going to defend it. And so progressives who support Medicare for all really bristle at this comparison. They say, you know, we've been the biggest ACA defenders out there. um, And, you know, but it's time to acknowledge that Millions of people are still uninsured. Other people can't afford their deductibles. And we should consider moving forward. And so I think this clash we're going to keep seeing over and over. Joanne? Uh, Noam Levy for the LA Times. I don't have the printout in front of me, so I don't have the exact headline. But Noam wrote a really good story about how the administration goes into one courtroom and says, oh, the ACA cannot survive without the mandate. And then they go into another courtroom and say, everything is hunky-dory. And it's not just in court. It's it's this, this It was one of these great stories where it was Something that was like out there, and he, you know, any of us could have noticed. And and Noam pulled it together really well. They go into this courtroom, they say this. They go into that courtroom, they say that. They tweet this, they tweet that. Like everybody, they want conflict. They have conflicting desires. They have <laughs> conflicting desires. Kimberly, um, given all, given the executive order on organ donation uh, this week, I decided to pick two pieces that have to do with a. Uh, live people um, who donated their organs. Uh, The first one is by Dylan Matthews from Vox and it's actually from a couple of years ago but it's always really stood out to me. Um, It's called Why I Gave My Kidney to a Stranger and Why You Should Consider Doing It Too and it's really helpful for anyone who might be thinking about what's called an altruistic kidney donation and then Ed Henry from Fox News wrote about how he's becoming a liver donor for the sister I love so she can live a long and healthy life. Uh, The liver actually read generates. And so that's why um, he's able to make that donation. Uh, So for anyone thinking about uh, making a donation like this, there is some good background information uh, and very personal stories about how it all goes. Okay. Mine is from the Washington Post by Christopher Rowland. It's called Hospices Go Unpunished for Reported Maggots and Uncontrolled Pain Watchdog Finds. It's about a report from the HHS Inspector General that strongly criticized the Medicare program for poor oversight of the hospice industry, which in too many cases has not been delivering care it is getting paid for and leaving patients in danger or in pain or worse. The latest report, which found one in five hospices had at least one serious deficiency, uh, is out almost exactly a year after another IG report found similar problems with care, and almost two years after an investigation by my Kaiser Health News colleagues, Janelle Alicia and Melissa Bailey, about hospices that were failing to live up to their care promises. This was a serious problem. It is still a serious problem, and taxpayers and patients deserve better. End of sermon. So that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We'll do another Ask Us Anything next month, so let us know what you want us to explain. We're at what the health, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Joanne Kennan. At Alice Holstein. At Leonard K.L. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.